Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and joining me is my co-host, Cecil Phillip. What's going on, Cecil? How you been, Richie? Oh man, um, I, I've I've been away for a little bit um, in a, in a place called Westeros. Have you heard of it? Maybe West, a little bit. Westeros. That sounds like uh, is that on HBO somewhere? Yeah, yeah. It's just like this hobo channel or something. I don't know. What you been doing there? <laughs> well, obviously, uh, watching people die horribly. <laughs> oh my god! And, you know what? I heard about this thing called the Red Wedding that happened there. Oh god, God, don't get, no. So for a long time, um, you know, I have avoided Game of Thrones. So my wife had read the series. She she had said she never she didn't really want to watch it. She read the book while we want to watch it. So over time, that kind of changed. And this summer, we said we would go through the series. Wow, um, I I think it is definitely my top five television series of all time. I mean, it really? is it is really just an amazing amazing show. I mean, it, it's like you're watching Lord of the Rings but like in a much deadlier world. It's it's really uh, amazing how much quality and effort and money they've put into this. It's not for kids, so don't watch it with your kids, but it is it is definitely eye-popping. We've essentially been been, watch, been binging it this entire uh, summer, and it's it's been a quite a wild ride. So if you haven't checked it out, go check out Game of Thrones. You know, every time I think about Game of Thrones, it is very much a binge-watch show. Because yeah. every time you watch whatever the current episode is, you're kind of like, I really need to see what's happening next. Like, yeah. you're, you're pumped up and you're ready to see the next one. You can't wait another week. Yeah. And and that's really been the problem is that because we've waited so long to watch it, there's been a lot of spoilers. That I'm not looking for spoilers, but now that I'm watching it, I'm I'm like, oh, I understand this and I understand that. And oh, wait, that happened? Uh, like I, uh, it just happened last night. I, I knew how someone had died and, um, I saw the spoiler literally the morning before. And it's like, come on, this, this happened over a year ago. People, why are you coming up now and, and, and talking about this? But yeah, it's been a year. So <laughs> nice. So what you've been up to? So I've been doing a fair amount of traveling lately. So I just came back from Redmond last week. And I'm leaving. What again. were you doing in Redmond, praise tell? Oh my gosh. So I just started a new job at Microsoft. So yes, you did. So now I'm a cloud developer advocate. And you know, under Woo! that rule, our job is to pretty much go out and educate people about using the cloud, particularly about using Azure, you know, let them know about their services, our documentation, and pretty much just making sure that everybody has a good experience being able to get their, their applications and solutions built. Well, congratulations, man. It, I'm thrilled for you. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, I think it, it ties in a lot of what I've been doing before, you know, being involved with, with teaching, with doing videos, you know, speaking at events and stuff like that. So I definitely think it's a, a logical next step for me. So again, I'm just, you know, excited to be able to continually support my community, you know, and a larger community now, now that we are under the Microsoft brand. So we'll see what happens. So um, I guess now is not a good time to, to talk to you about how much AWS is better than Azure. It's not a good... We'll talk about that offline. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> but you're heading to that conference, huh? Yeah, I'm heading to that conference. So on Sunday, I'll be flying out to Wisconsin, Wisconsin Dells. Um, 
and then I'm going to be at that conference, which is a software development conference. You know, not just .NET, not just Azure, but you know, all kinds of technologies and disciplines and platforms. So, I've never been before. You know, I've heard tons of good stuff about it. So, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to to going out there. So, if you're going to be at that conference, definitely say hi to Cecil and congratulate him on his new blue badge and Woo-hoo! and whatnot. And I guess Azure means blue. So, there you go. You're you're more blue than than most. I <laughs> see. It. There you go. So, who are we talking to today? So today we're talking to Victor Moreno. So Victor has been working with web technology since before CSS was invented. With eight years of professional experience, he's worked as a Python developer, React.js developer, and also has experience in managing corporate IT infrastructures in VMware, Windows Server environment. He's also an AWS certified solutions architect, AWS certified developer, and a developer on TopTile. Victor's background in entrepreneurship makes him a programmer with a uniquely pragmatic perspective, concerned with delivering business value first and foremost. Victor is involved in two early stage startups and is currently the academic director of a coding bootcamp named Tech Launch. This episode was recorded on May 2nd, 2017, and now our conversation with Victor Moreno. And now, away from the keyboards, feature conversation. So today on the way from the keyboard, we have Victor Moreno joining us. What's going on, Victor? How's it going, guys? Thanks for having me. No, it's definitely a pleasure to have you on, man. So uh, why don't you tell us, what have you, uh, what have you been up to? So um, I just got done teaching a WordPress class in the, at Pipeline, Doral. There was like a bunch of people there from all walks of life. One was a sysadmin. Uh, a couple of others were marketing companies. Um, they were trying to tell me that everybody that the entire world wide web runs on wordpress i was like no guys come on yeah. only and, a quarter uh, <laughs> not, not the entire one just 25 percent. exactly i kept giving them the number about 25 percent. no 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 it's like 80 come on um <laughs> and then we had uh you know people from all walks of life uh, some of them that just wanted to have their own blogs and whatnot so it, w- it was really fun uh people were really receptive so it was good nice so before we actually dig into your projects and you know some of the cool stuff that you're doing why don't you tell us a little bit of background about yourself and how you even got into technology in the first place? Cool. So how I got into technology is that uh, my dad sort of tricked me into uh, liking computers ever since I was seven. He tricked um, you? Really? How do you do that? Yeah. So he started like sort of little by little introducing things to me and, and kind of teaching me how to do something that would make me want to do something else. So he taught me how to install a CD-ROM and then later bought me a sound card so I would figure out how to install it myself. And then he taught me how to install Doom so that later on I wanted to install Duke Nukem or Rise of the Triad and I had to do it myself and I had to use the command line for that. So all these different things. And um, even later on, when I was like 10, he uh, hired me to do Photoshop for him. And I don't exactly remember how I learned Photoshop, but um, he ended up paying me what I, at that point when I was 10, he, it felt like an insane amount of money to do these. Uh, he, he was, he used to, he had a contract to remodel buses and I would do these brochures with the pictures of the finished buses. And um, so that was cool. And I felt like I was making a lot of money. And um, actually I remember that the um, people who worked for my dad, they wanted me to make the pages of the brochures match exactly the eight and a half by 11 of letter size, right? And uh, back in those days, you were lucky to to get, you know, like five kilobytes per second transfers. And, uh, you know, you're, the images would load line you know, section by section. Right. And I was telling them, 
man, this makes the images bigger, all this white space. And they wouldn't have it. Like it's, it makes it more difficult for me to get you the images. And we're using floppy disks and we're using slow internet. And they just oh wouldn't listen to it. So actually that, that should have been the first time that I learned that what matters when you're delivering a product or a service is that the people that uh, you're delivering it to see the value and use it. Right. Um, but I didn't really learn that till like 20 years after that. So, yeah, so that's kind of how I got my start. After that, I got, I went to a computer science, um, uh, made bachelor's in college and I finished and I had like a lot of these foundational skills, but I, you know, I would look at job applications and it's like, I was supposed to know XML, SOAP, um, Java servlets. It was back in the day, some HTML, nice. none of things which existed in college, in my college career, at least. Hey, but hey, I could do a math proof and um, try to tell employers that and they didn't really see the value on it and, and they shouldn't. So that's when I became kind of like, a, that's when my passion for, for what I call real education started. So what I'm working on right now, I'm the director of a coding school called uh, Tech Launch. We just changed the name from Florida Vocational Institute to Tech Launch. Okay. And um, we have a nine-month program where we just focus on what you need to be and what you need to do to be like a real web developer, real full-stack developer. Um, you're not going to know how to write assembly code. You're not going to know, you know, how page swapping algorithms work. But you're going to know how to hit a database. You're going to know how to, you know, code model view control on the back end. You're going to know how to code a RESTful service. So all those different things. So that's kind of so, what, what I'm into. So I'm not going to know ADA or COBOL or Fortran <laughs> no. or anything like that? No. And you're not going to know um, Java 6 or whatever textbook they're using in college now. So I find it kind of interesting that you you actively pursued like a path in education, you know, having a technical background, only because most of the people, at least in my environment, most of the people that I've had the opportunity to interact with, it's kind of been something that, you know, they volunteered to do or they decided to come help out somebody and then, you know, they kind of grew into it. But it kind of sounds like you had this, this spark in you that was like, hey, I really want to get into education. Well, I did have that spark in me, but it, I wasn't able to pursue it in any kind of meaningful way. Because when you think I want to get into education, what do you think? I need to get a doctorate so I can go teach at a college, right? right. Um, that I didn't, that was definitely not in the cards for me. And um, what I did was I actually, I worked for a company that I didn't really like that much and I wanted to get out of coding. So I got a master's in finance and I started a business like I got my series seven, I did all these different things. So I changed careers for a little while. And then, you know, something led to another, I crashed and burned, my business kind of failed. Not kind what, of, um, what business totally was that? Was that if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, it was a financial uh, advising firm. So I had my series seven, my series 65, I was a registered investment advisor, okay. I could do life insurance, health insurance, and all those different things. So once I got done with that, I landed in a job teaching and that's when I kind of fell in love with it. You know, that's like the first thing that I could find because I didn't have money to put in, you know, the next tank of gas. I landed a job teaching at a high school, Java, and uh, freaking loved it. It was amazing. And uh, that's when I kind of like, hey, like this might be a thing. So eventually, you know, I got into the IT department of the school, like, you know, went up a couple of uh, job titles. And then after that, somebody found me on LinkedIn. And I got into this company, this uh, Florida Vocational Institute company, which is an amazing company, man. Like the leadership team is super, super amazing. They they kind of, they pay fairly. So, you know, like 
they understand that if you don't pay a developer what a developer makes, he's going to find something else to do. Right. So, uh, and they, and they have no interest in like, like many other schools, they have no interest in hiring, you know, and compromising the quality of the people they hire for salary. So if the person that they have to hire costs X, they're going to pay X, you know? Right. That's pretty cool. So I want to, I want to rewind a little bit and I want you to tell us a little bit about what your early days of teaching was like, like your first students, your first class, you know, having to create your first set of lesson plans and those type of things. Oh my God, man. It's, um, it's actually an interesting story because the reason why I stumbled upon that job is because they, the school was in a scramble to replace the, this lady, the computer science teacher who was, um, fortunately she got very ill and, uh, she couldn't go on teaching anymore. And, um, so I replaced her and the first thing that I walked, when I walked in, I had no idea what I was doing, you know? So like the first thing that I kind of made a conscious effort to do, it was an all boys school. So I was like, man, I'm not going to let let these, uh, little fools get control of me and start testing me. So that was my main concern, you know, not, not being that teacher that that's a sort of step all over. Make sure they respect you, that type of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So that took not that much work because, uh, you know, I'm a big guy and, um, it's funny what you have to, and what you get away with in an old boy school probably shouldn't say a lot of it, but let's just say that you can kind of yell at kids. And if you punch a locker once and it's really loud, they'll never mess with you again. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to write that down. Punch locker once. Check. <laughs> nice. Reminds me of that. Uh, oh, what was that? The that movie, uh, the, the new guy or something like that, where you walk into a school. It was Eddie Griffin was in it. It's like when you walk into you to punch the biggest, baddest guy in the in the yard, and the guy goes and does that, and nobody is around to see it. <laughs> <laughs> so now you you were able to establish some some level of respect with your students, right? So like, what are some of the other challenges that you had? you know, within those first few months of you being a teacher now? Well, motivation, man. So the the AP computer science course has some of the same issues that college courses have, which is it's very, very dry and very theory driven and very unrewarding. So you, you, you know, bust your butt, you work for 12 hours on this algorithm to figure it out to, I don't know, convert a 2D array of arbitrary row sizes into a single dimensional array. Um, or a 3D array into a single dimensional array and you finally do it and there's nothing that comes up. There's not a little ding. There's not a little nice website. There's nothing, literally nothing that happens. Just you, you're the only one who sees it. You can't show it to anybody. You can't really talk about it with anybody. So it's pretty unrewarding the way that they teach it. So maintaining the student's motivation was a, a big deal. So I made a bunch of games and I made a, a bunch of cool things that deviated from the curriculum. And then came the end of the year and they sucked at the AP exam. So that balance, that balance was tough. Yeah, I always find, like it's hard when people ask you the question, you know, should I, should I do, be more academic and go to college or if I should pursue another route? Because I feel if you go, you know, hard one way or another, you're going to miss out on some pieces of information. Yeah. Right. I, I think the theoretical that you know, you get from a traditional college education is important, but I also think practical skills and knowledge are just as important too, right? So again, trying to find that balance in terms of 
making sure that your students get that value is, is not an easy thing to do, particularly when you're talking about limited budgets, limited course time, obviously, and limited resources. You know, how do you how do you squeeze all that all that information within those type of constraints? Exactly. And what it comes down to, I guess, you know, in, in the in the line of business that I'm currently in with tech launches, we try to aim at employment, right? And if somebody, you know, they, they get a job making 20, 25 bucks an hour doing HTML, CSS, JavaScript, front end. And if they wanna if they wanna hit that next level, they wanna go for the job at, you know, Amazon or AdCirc, Yelp, whatever. Um, they're going to have to brush up on their computer science skills. So they're going to have to take, a, you know, two, three, four college courses. And that's going to be on their own, you know. So we make sure that we don't give a foundation only with no bridge towards employment. We try to hit employment first. And then that person that wants to hit that next level, they can. I mean, that reminds me of my, my own college career. I was a computer science um, for like a cup of coffee and I kind of realized that, you know, assembly is not what's going to get me a job and ADA programming is not going to get me a job, at least a job that I would want. Um, I had already been in the, and in, gotten an internship at, uh, at, for an HR position, but doing some technical things, I have no idea how that kind of worked out, but, um, I kind of realized what that was. And so I went into the, uh, College of Business at the University of Miami and was in their computer information systems degree. And that was much more applied than CS, which was very theoretical. And yeah, that's, and that's, you know what, like the, I think that is a big problem because we're always talking about the shortage of, of, of STEM majors and the shortage of technology workers. And yet we're not doing anything to really address it. We're still treating CS degrees and, and a lot of, you know, engineering degrees as if is this kind of like ivory tower that you have to be worthy enough to, to scale. And the reality is we don't need to filter out. We need to find ways to, to produce more technologists. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's almost it feels like there's been some kickback now that from um, I was just on Facebook and a good friend of mine who I graduated from the University of Miami with. He's an he's an educator in Chicago. Uh, vice principal, and he put a post up and how it's, there's too much STEM focus now and there's not enough on the arts. And and I replied back to him saying, look, we still have a STEM problem because we still don't have enough people to fill positions. I mean, that's our problem. This is why STEM is so important. And it's not that we don't dislike the arts, but I'm sure if we need more actors, that's not a problem. Um, our problem is that we don't have enough uh, computer engineers. We don't have enough computer scientists. We don't even have enough... Um, uh, to fill the current positions we have, more or less positions we're going to have in ten years, and you know that's the important thing, and 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 getting you know people in the right spots at the right time, and getting them educated uh, to do that. That's why we need more STEM, and that's why we need more women in in technology, and 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 not this backlash from education saying that oh no, don't forget the arts. Yeah. I haven't forgot the arts. I love Hamilton. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> And I think that that's a false dichotomy too, because so let's think about what can, you know, impel somebody to, to say, Hey, let's not forget the arts. I think that arts are valuable, right? In that they produce a kind of different way of thinking. Um, you know, you, you kind of think more right-brained when it comes to the arts, so to speak, right? Let's, let's use that approximation. But the misconception there is that computer programming is like that too, man. And people, people think that computer programming is like counting numbers and it's not. You know, it's, it's very 
kind of like right brain creative network thinking problem solving that you have to do in order to to actually design something from scratch if you're copying and pasting code into wordpress then that's one thing but if you're really designing software from scratch that's a super creative endeavor i like to compare it to being like a painter or let's say you're an yeah. author and you're writing a book right yeah and you think about the different flows that they go through right like they write a first draft and you know they think about different concepts or you know the artist you might have a rough sketch and then you know you go through these different iterations and you try and creatively come up with a solution or you know come up with some final output for what you're really trying to achieve and it's very much the same thing with computing right and you know regardless of whether you're doing art or you're designing back-end systems or you're doing business to business integration or whatever other fancy things that there are you know, you when you're building it from scratch, kind of like what you said, you know, it's there's very much a case where I need to really think about these different scenarios and I need to come up with a design. I need to come up with a plan that's going to make this thing work well. Right. And, you know, you, you need to go through the process. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, there's a lot of value in that. And that's not again, you know, that's not a type of thinking that's taught very well in schools. And that's probably why there's, you know, the. Emphasis on sticking the A in STEM and making it STEAM to yeah. teach that type of thinking, I guess, a little bit more. But uh, in reality, we should really be applying that to every single subject matter in schools. No, I, I think that's I think that's very valuable and very important for us to do because one of the things I like to tell my students anyway is even if you're in the technology field, if you're in the software field, you don't have to be a developer. Right, like when you walk into the room and you're building a project, there's a lot of people that are involved. You know, you, you might have a designer, you might have the actual developer, they might be a database guy, they might be a business analyst, they might be a PM, or you know, there's lots of people that are involved in the process. Sometimes there's too many of them, but anyway, there's lots of people involved in the process that really help you get to that final that final product. And then even after that, right, there's the sales and the marketers, there's people that do customer success. And, you know, they need to understand on some level, maybe not as deep as, you know, what line of code did this happen, but they need to understand on some level how exactly software works. And they need to be able to have that conversation intelligently, you know, both with the customers and also with the people that you work with. And so I think what's important to let people see is one that, one that there's options. Because again, every developer doesn't want to be a manager and every manager doesn't want to be a developer, right? Like, so we need, we need to figure out how can we educate people for those types of things and, and be able to fill those types of positions. Or like, you know, explain to people that it's not going to hurt them to understand these things. So one of the yeah. challenges that I face is that um, in trying to kind of like educate non-programmers about this stuff, is especially non-programmers who are stuck, you know, stuck making, you know, 15 bucks an hour and they have been for four years as a bank teller or whatever. Hey, man, like if you learn to code there's a whole new world of opportunity that opens up to you. And you don't have to be that engineer guy that's, that obsesses over practicing on code wars or whatever. You you can always, just, just by knowing enough about programming, about what technology can do, you can be a project manager, like you said, you know, and you can be that person who knows what's actually possible. You can have a completely different perspective in leadership and management, uh, even in whatever job you end up doing. Even if it's clerical, then you're, you're thinking on a different on a different level. You're thinking about automating processes and you're thinking about what machines are better suited to do than humans and vice versa. So I think that really we should we should start teaching code soon, like at, you know, early, I mean, like at sixth grade or something so that people can develop that um 
mentality. And not to mention that if once you, you know, you invest a year into learning the code, there's a bunch of stuff that you can do to make it super fun. You know, you can learn physics through code. There's things like Gary's mod, which is, um, I believe it's a Minecraft mod that, you know, you can do all sorts of physics in there. You can do Kerbal Space Station and mods for Minecraft. You can do all this cool stuff that you know, it's actually fun and that will actually make people, you know, some people at least want to go to school and want to learn. Well, I mean, how do you balance that, right? So if I'm teaching them young, most likely I'm going to teach them a, a programming language that may not be around when, they, when they're a little bit older. The theory is maybe you teach them a little bit more um, theory uh, along with the code so then they can walk to the next language just a little bit easier. How's that, how do you, how's that balance kind of work? Well, I think that the main thing that, uh, that a programmer needs to have and what helps you kind of make it a creative endeavor is you kind of have all these like problem solution patterns in your mind. So you know what a loop looks like, you know when, when to use a loop, you know what a function looks like, you know when to use a function, you know when to use, uh, you know how to aggregate all the elements in an array, you know how to you know search through an array. You have all these little patterns kind of memorized and those patterns are language agnostic. Once you have those patterns like very, very well understood, you can tackle a problem head on in any language. The goal is just to help students um, understand things like recursion functions and and loops and and, and all this um, other different things, like even more complex solutions, like slightly more complex uh, solutions to problems like what I was talking about right now. This, so there's two ways I can look at it. So one, as a developer, like you're going to go through transitions, right? Like I started off as a Java Python guy and then I got a job as doing .NET and doing web forms. And then I no longer do web forms. I do like APIs and those types of things. So, so when you think about the life of a developer, you might learn something today and this stuff is going to change, right? Yeah. I think what's important for the students to learn, regardless of whatever language it is or whatever tool it is, because I, I think in, in a lot of schools now, they teach this thing called Scratch, which mm -hmm. is like a graphical language, right? You're obviously not going to build websites and servers with it, but like it's a language for learning, right? And that's, that's the point of it. And so I think what, what we need to do, you know, using tools like that, is find a way to make the lessons more engaging and memorable because if they're fun, they're going to remember it. And if they're fun, they're going to want to keep doing it. Right. And then also be a little sneaky, right. And kind of put some of that, that theoretical knowledge and interweave it into the fun parts of it. You know, so kind of like what you're saying, like, how do I teach, how do I teach somebody, you know, how functions work and how simple input output works? Like, how do I, how do I go through that process? Right. And I'm sure using some of these tools, you could do that. You know, I actually think for kids that are maybe in high school or maybe a little bit younger than that, I think it'll be good if they know a little bit of programming because maybe it'll help them with their math homework. Because you could say, okay, I don't really understand this math problem. Let me try and code it. Yeah. Okay. And now, and now you're going through the process of trying to understand it by writing it and doing it yourself. I actually think that might actually make, it, make you committed to memory a little bit better, right? But assuming that you have some basic concepts of, you know, like you said, loops and functions and conditional logic and, and whatever the case is, and the language doesn't matter, because right? again, you're not teaching them programming at that level to be employees. Exactly, right? you're, you're you're teaching them with the with the purpose of understanding problem solving, right? Like how can you approach this? How can you approach a scenario and deconstruct it into smaller pieces? 
and helping them develop an intuition for it, you know, because once you have that skill set, like if you're going to be a marketing officer and you realize that, you know, I don't know, like programming in your own A-B testing platform is going to help you save a ton of money for the company, you're going to do it. And it's not going to be such a huge barrier to entry because you don't even know what an if statement is. So once you have those skills, you can like dive back into it whenever you need to, if you do. And if you don't ever need to, the worst thing that can happen is that you'll be able to actually think about technology and think about what technology can do and realize, kind of like, you know, have a more realistic picture of the world. Because a lot of people out there, man, we in technology don't necessarily know, but I've realized that a lot of people pull out their phones and they don't even realize that these apps that they're using are full technology companies behind them, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so Victor, tell me a little bit about does a person that develops curriculum like you have to decide what's important, right? yeah? And what 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 topics you know you really want to focus on? So, how do you do that? There's obviously a lot of personal bias, but I try to do my best to go back to the employers and constantly like see what jobs were actually succeeding in placing the students at. And then try to tailor the curriculum more and more for the needs of those jobs. So one thing that I didn't have in the curriculum at all before was uh, CSS animations. But um, now, like, as of the last couple of years, these websites that have scroll effects where you scroll down and a bunch of animations pop up, you know, they, they become huge. And apparently, like, people think that's hard to do. So, and it's not. So I put it, you know, I put like four days of that into the curriculum as a response to employer demand. I put a lot more WordPress into the curriculum as a response to employer demand, but I'm not talking about, you know, clicking and creating pages. I'm talking about actually editing themes and going into functions.php and all these different things. So that's kind of like, you know, it's employer driven and local employer driven too, you know. Nice. So after you've done that initial step, what what kind of happens after that? How do they how do they continue to grow? You know what I mean? Like how do they continue to become better? Well, I mean, we've only been around for a couple of years and the program is nine months. So I guess that remains to be seen. So it, it's a lot. It's really up to the student. You know, I have uh, two of the better students that I that have been able to place in jobs or three of them. Well, there was one that the guy had like a um, computer science degree from Cuba and the guy was like really, really good at it. So he came in knowing how to program already. So he picked up everything super fast and he got his job and... and He's happy at the job. I'm, I'm sure that he'll be able to learn more and grow more from there. Uh, there was another one who was an army guy, and he did the program. He got good at front end stuff, and you know he he's on his own. He's kind of been learning more about design, design principles, typography, all these different things, so he can so he can become a well rounded kind of a front end designer slash developer. And um, there's another guy that like. He wants to meet all the time. He wants to come back to school. He graduated like three months ago. He keeps coming back to school to see what else we put into the curriculum to learn it. So that's that's another thing I guess we can do. But it, ultimately, it'll be up to the individual, you know. And hopefully by by putting them into a real, you know, in, in an actual job where they're actually writing code, they'll stay motivated to and continue to learn and grow. One of the things I know we've spoken on the show a little bit about before is, you know, the importance of of being able to rely on you know, not just your educators, but also the people that are around you, right? Like, you know, your friends, your family, your community. So kind of help not just teach you, but kind of help keep that, um, keep that excitement going, right? And keep that inspiration and, you know, keep that passion, you know, I mean, active. At least I've always find, you know, I, I learned some of the best things from, from, you know, when I go to conferences, when I, you know, go out and I meet other people, 
that are using the similar technologies that I'm using, but maybe they're using it in a different way, right? And so, you know, being able to to congregate somewhere, right, to get together somewhere and have these types of conversation, I think is tremendously important. But, you know, I think at least just encouraging people to know that, hey, you know, you don't have to go sit in your cubicle by yourself after you've gotten this job and, you know, we've cut you off, right? You can come back and you could talk to us and we can continue to have some level of interaction because again, like you want to know what your students are doing and, you know, they want to know that they can kind of trust you, right? If you're, you're a teacher, like they should be able to trust you and have some faith in you that, you know, you got to kind of lead them along a path that's going to be something that's going to be beneficial for them. Yeah. Building a community is, is the hugest challenge. You know, um, if you notice, I think if you put it on paper, online education is great, except for the fact that they have like a 5% completion rate. You know, mm. long online courses and online degrees. So like Coursera, micro credentials and Udacity, they have abysmal completion rates. Um, in paper, though, if somebody is able to figure out how to create like a vibrant online community around these programs, then that's it. That's the future of education, man, because you have all the motivation you need and you have, I mean, economies of scale, cheap price, up-to-date knowledge. So there's there's no downsides to it. Right. Creating that long-lasting community is something that's difficult for us too. Right. What do you think the technical community can do to kind of help foster, push, you know, kind of enhance technical education, right? For some of the new, you know, younger folks, some of the people that are switching over and deciding to explore a technology career. Well, what I think we could do is... is relatively simple, but how to go about doing it and, and whether it can be done is difficult. So the main thing that I think we should be doing is um, kind of stopping this, this attitude of there's a lot of imposter syndrome and this attitude that, you know, nobody feels like they're good enough. So they want to, you know, study all the time and they want to make it seem like they want to make it really, really obvious that they study all the time. And that kind of makes it threatening to outsiders. When in reality, I think, it's true for most of us, you know, we'll, we'll spend a month or two frenetically. We enroll in an online class. We frenetically study and balance that with our daily lives. And then we spend a month or two taking it kind of easy. There's a lot of hero worshiping, dude, hero worshiping too. You know, like you, ha you have somebody, these new budding developers that have been around for one or two years and they just hero worship anything that a dude on TC39 says, you know, so just because he said it, it's, it's like gospel. And this, <laughs> these attitudes, I think that, I think that these attitudes hold hold us back. And not to mention, I mean, the kind of the field is ruled by young men. And um, sometimes we're making the same mistakes that we made like six, seven years ago. So, Victor, I'm kind of glad you brought that up because so to me, that kind of that kind of highlights an avenue that I think we really need to pay attention to. And that's how do we educate new developers about the history of the mistakes that we've already made, history of research that's already been done, you know, like patterns and practices that have already been established. Because kind of like what you said, like I feel in a lot of new frameworks, technologies, stacks, whatever you want to call them that we are seeing today, you know, we could look at that and be like, okay, that's not going to last. Oh, okay, that's, you know, we did so-and-so-and-so this many years ago and it doesn't work, so I'm not going to pay attention to this. But people are still spending time and effort building these things and I think it's mainly because well they just don't know yeah but I think that's a big hole I think there's a, definitely an a avenue or there's something open there for somebody 
particularly I think educational institutions, regardless of whether you're a college or not, to really try and make sure that students understand or at least have the resources to go out and find out what worked and what didn't work for us in the past. Right? Like kinda like when you we think about this whole functional programming revolution. Like functional programming is not a new thing. I think it's important for us to understand again the history of that. Like where did that come from? You know, and, and understand some of those established languages that have done certain things and why have done certain things. You know, maybe some of the things they did weren't right. I'm not saying, you know, everything that's old is good. But at the same time too, like let's understand what the problems are, let's understand what the good things were, and then we could kind of, you know, tweak our future based on that. Yeah, but the thing is that nobody, so like there's this huge divide, right? There's universities and colleges teaching about assembly and about page swapping and operating systems. And then there's the front end masters of the world who will kind of instill into students the impression that if you know Passport JS, you are a back end developer and a security expert. And Ooh. it's like, dude, forget about Passport JS. Like, understand. You know how sessions work and understand the OSI model, understand, um, you know, web tokens too. So understand the two main models of authentication and authorization and then like how and when to use them and how they work and write it yourself. You know, like it's not that hard to write a backend with users that you can register and log in. So there's this uh, uh, emphasis on, on tools and tools and tools. And it's getting ridiculous. I mean, I, I am my main thing is in the React ecosystem. So I do some freelance developer development for um, TopTile.com. And, uh, dude, every time I turn around for two days and I look back, everything's broken. You know, so like nowadays you have to install your packages with specific versions because three months down the line, Angular will break everything. Three months down the line, React will break everything. So React Router has gone through four versions in like f- six months. And uh, now it works completely different than it did even a couple of months ago. Um, you so, just explained my day today where I had to update all my packages for a project that I haven't even completed yet um, because all I updated one package and then it was a cascading effect all the way down. I had to update everything. And, and that an was just, feeling. That I usually was just go back. Yeah, that wasn't even React. That was just Node. Like one thing doesn't work and then the next thing doesn't work. And then, you know, uh, you'd have Mocha tests, unit tests that were working and now they're not just because I updated one freaking package. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's a challenge for when you, when you have a freelance practice because you have this product that you finished a year ago and they ask you for a little bit of maintenance, whatever. They're going to pay you, you know, 50 bucks an hour. You're going to do a three-hour gig for them. And, you know, it makes sense. But then... You pull it down into your computer and you NPMI and all of a sudden nothing works. So you have to like, you know, go back and make sure and specify your dependencies that it's this specific version because now nothing else works. Because as a freelance developer, I'm not going to spend forever, you know, on a project that I'm not getting paid anymore, you know, updating the packages and updating the code to work with the latest thing. So I'm just going to work with the old version. You know, it just yeah. makes no sense. And I think that also shows how different software development has become today, right? Like if you look at traditional Microsoft and you look at open source today and kind of think about what would happen if Microsoft decided, hey, I'm going to release a new version of my products every three months. Like you'd probably say, I don't really want to do business with you anymore, right? But for some reason, because the software is open source and you're not paying for it, it's okay for them to break stuff all the time. And I don't get it. It's not only okay, it's like it's a badge of honor to write code in a platform that breaks every other day. 
know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got to change our API. Here, let's upgrade version. Do you remember how we, you, we used to have to find out about versions like 20 years ago? Like, I remember going to opening up, like, a, 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 the new edition of Visual Basic Programmer's Journal, and in the middle was, like, the centerfold of the new UI of the next Visual Basic, and then you're sitting there reading about all the new features that are coming in to the, right. the thing that's going to hit next month. That's how you used to find out what the features are, right? <laughs> it, was, it was a magazine, and, oh, look, it's yep. coming out next month in a box, and I actually yep. had to go to the store and buy it crazy and now today you npm install and oh look all my stuff's broken what yeah, happened right. oh i guess exactly they must have released a new version of the software <laughs> npm warning, update so- oh damn it well, i mean just for our listeners though i mean i know we're talking a lot about javascript but it happens a lot in other communities too right like python ruby even net seeing its fair share of some of that stuff right now today. yeah i think it's a you know like anything open source is going to be like that you know because there's a million and anything with a vibrant community but anyway, Victor, I know we've spoken a lot about, you know, again, like some of the stuff that you're working on and, you know, um, your company. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about you? Like, what are some of the things you do when you're not, you know, when you're not working, when you're not teaching, you know, when you're not doing your freelance work? Well, um, I have a, a wife and a kid. He's one. So, oh, nice. Congrats. <laughs> thanks. I'm trying to spend more time with them um, lately. And I have a project, which is Project live to be an old man so i'm starting i'm starting to work out again amen um, i used to be i used to be a lot into powerlifting, so i used to have like competitive aspirations so i did it for like four or five years pretty seriously and i was trying to get my weight down while simultaneously getting my lifts up so the best i ever got was a 380 bench um 575 deadlift and my squat always sucked it's like 440 um so that's, you know, something that I'm trying to get back into. Not so much chasing. I'm still pretty strong. I still bench like 320. So not so much chasing the, the weights, but, you know, just trying to like lose weight and get back down to a manageable weight where I, I don't choke after two flights of stairs. Wow, that's crazy. So how, how do, what made you decide to get into bodybuilding? What was the inspiration there? Well, was it a girl? <laughs> no, yeah. it was, was uh, actually, you know what? It was, uh, I, I found the support structure. So I liked it forever. So I liked lifting weights and, and strength sports for forever since I was like 17. But every time I started, you know, with a strong impetus of it, I would drop out after like four or five months. Um, but one thing, when I was doing my master's, I met this guy. He was super jacked. And we started just working out together. And, you know, having that support structure kept me, kept the habit alive for long enough until it became self-perpetuating. And then I, it just took off on its own. So it's it's just having that, even if it's a community of one, two people, that helps out a lot. You know, when you right. try to maintain motivation on your own, it's it's really, really tough. It's kind of like with everything else, right? You know, you, you want to work out, you want to learn how to code, you want to mm-hmm. pick up a particular skill. You know, sitting down and doing it by yourself is not fun, right? Like you got to have that support and, system. And you're not going to stay motivated for very long either. Yeah. Know? You know, for people that are kind of want to follow you, they want to know, how they could keep up with some of the things you're working on, some of the things that you're doing. What's um, What are some of the best ways that they could keep in contact with you? Well, uh, I don't work nearly as much on my YouTube channel, but I do have a YouTube channel. Oh, really? Um, nice. Yeah, it's The Coding Teacher. So just like that, okay. The Coding cool. Teacher. And um, I do little videos there talking about things like... Uh, so I do some tools. Like I did a, a little series on the main stack 
a few months ago, so a lot of those practices are outdated already. But uh, so I'm, I'm shifting lately to doing more things that I believe will stick around for a long time. So I did a you know one hour flexbox tutorial. So in case that somebody you know still not on board with flexbox and they're they have to do HTML for work, they should probably get on board with it. And uh, I'm gonna start doing a series about like authentic authentication and authorization like principles wise. You know like right. first principles, platform agnostic principles, and then yeah, quick implementation of Node.js too. Nice, cool. Very cool, very cool. We'll make sure we put some, you know, some of the links to your, your YouTube channel and, um, you know, maybe some of your social media accounts inside of the show notes so people can check it out. Cool. Cool. Well, Victor, hey, thank you, man. We appreciate it. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you guys for having me. It was great. We'd like to thank Victor for being a guest on the show. It was great to have the opportunity to chat with him. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Also, remember to check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash AFTK podcast and on Twitter at AFTK podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jarris. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. You can subscribe to the show via the website, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, sign up to our newsletter where you'll get extra episodes and behind scene access to Away From The Keyboard. Next on Away From The Keyboard, we'll have database expert Kevin Klein. And so I sent them the abstract that I had uh, uh, written for that master's degree. And I thought, well, maybe I can um, kind of multi-purpose this. And um, it turns out that they, they sent me a letter, said, hey, you know, we like your abstract. We'd like you to write this book for us. And uh, I was really su- surprised. Um, and in fact, uh, I finished that book. But I never finished the master's degree. So. Oh, man. This one was fun. This one was really cool. Yeah, it was great to talk to Kevin Mann. He had so much cool stuff to say. Yeah, um, he used to work at NASA. I mean, that's all you need to know. Come back. <laughs> Come back next week. You know, we seem to be interviewing a lot of folks that used to work at NASA. Like, what's going on here? I think it's all the gray beards. <laughs> Probably. That might be one yep. of this. Yeah. Okay, get out now. Bye. We want to thank you for listening to Away From The Keyboard. As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Hasta luego.
I want to, the analogy that I use is like, we're, we're, you know, personal trainers and they're diet pill salespeople. So they're selling the diet pill, like hotcakes. <laughs> and we're selling. I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I know the, that was the challenge. The challenge is to find that, that target audience. And that's why we changed the name to Tech Launch. So we could be cool. We could be like a boot camp where, where you actually learn job skills. 